Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the market, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist. Today we'll explore what quantitative easing is, how it works, and how it became part of central banks' toolkits. And are we reaching a turning point for QE? But first, European and American stock markets are at record highs as traders look ahead to the two-day policy meeting of the US Federal Reserve. The tech-heavy Nasdaq index reached another record high yesterday on Monday the 26th of April. The Nasdaq enjoyed a gain of 121. And the Nasdaq managed to outperform uh, technology names leading the charge. The Nasdaq notching record closes as earnings season reaches a... Earnings season is kicking into gear, with big tech reporting results this week. And there have already been strong performances from banks and Tesla, the electric car maker. There are now clear signs of a post-pandemic rally. But what does the Fed make of America's economic recovery? On the activity front, all the figures that we've received between now and the previous Fed meeting have been very strong. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. For example, the latest job figures released earlier in April beat expectations. The US economy added over 900,000 jobs in March. You know, in a typical month pre-pandemic, it might have added 200,000. So sort of a really strong number. And the unemployment rate fell to 6%. Retail sales were very strong as well. So America does seem to be bouncing back pretty well from the pandemic struggles. You shouldn't get too carried away, though. There's sort of still a long way to go before we're back to where we were in February 2020. So, for example, total employment in February was 152 and a half million Americans. Now it's just 144 million. So you still have more than 8 million jobs to add before you're sort of back quite to where we you were. Now, we're speaking ahead of the Federal Reserve's meeting on the 27th and the 28th of April. They're going to be thinking about the state of the economic recovery, but they're also going to be thinking about inflation. And tell us what that looks like. So one of the big changes since the last time the Fed met is that inflation has now tracked above their target range. The figure that went above 2% was the CPI headline figure. It rose to 2.6% at its last print, i.e. prices in March 2021 were 2.6% higher than they were in March 2020. Now, a lot of that will be that things started falling off a cliff in March 2020. So that's not the only figure you should necessarily look at or think about. You can also look at the month-on-month change that suggests a sort of general pace at which prices are increasing. And if you sort of annualise how it's increasing month to month, you get a figure that's sort of close to 2% as well. So inflation definitely has returned to at least close to their target, possibly above it. And that's likely to be the, the focus of a lot of Fed discussion and many of the questions that they'll get in their press conference on Wednesday. Now, as you said, inflation's risen above the Fed's target. And although the economy hasn't yet recovered to its pre-pandemic 
levels, most economists expect the American economy to expand at quite a rapid pace this year, thanks to both Joe Biden's stimulus, but also the Fed's own monetary policy. Do you think at this meeting we'll get hints from Jerome Powell that maybe it's time to ease up on the gas? That does seem unlikely. The Fed has shifted the way that it targets and thinks about inflation to sort of say that it should hit its target level of 2% on average, not that inflation should never go above that level. So you should think of it as sort of a moving target rather than a ceiling. And that suggests that they're going to be more lenient when inflation figures rise above their target in the future. So this is sort of the first whiff of an above target print if they were sort of in immediately to capitulate and start talking very vehemently about tightening and raising rates and taking the economy off the stimulus support that they put it on in the pandemic, then I think that most Fed watchers, most economists would be quite surprised by that. The change in language that people are looking for is whether the Fed starts to suggest that at some point in the future, they might talk about removing the stimulus asset purchases that they've been doing. So at the moment, the Fed is buying $120 billion worth of financial assets per month, sort of mostly treasuries. And at some point, it's going to want to take the economy off that stimulus. And it's given no indication so far that it's even time to start discussing it. But it's possible that the recovery in the economy and rising in inflation might potentially get them to start thinking about that conversation. And Alice, what lessons do you think Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, might have learnt about the trickiness of withdrawing stimulus? I mean, in general, the Fed has learned that it's very difficult to remove stimulus and that you need to be very cautious communicating those policy changes to investors and economists, etc. Because the sort of big parallel with the decision that the Fed is trying to make now about when to scale back asset purchases and when to sort of remove that support from the economy is the taper tantrum that happened post the global financial crisis. And when the Fed did decide to start tapering quantitative easing, so just to reduce the amount of total assets they were buying every month, not even to fully stop it or even reverse it by shrinking their asset holdings back down again. It really was this sort of shock that reverberated all around the world. You had sort of huge moves in emerging market currencies and stock indexes. The stock market in America fell quite sharply as well. And it really was the dominant market driver for sort of more than a year was, well, are they going to taper by even more? And how hawkish is the Fed on removing stimulus now? And the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, is very keen to avoid the mistakes that his predecessors made. He's even said as much. You know, we know we need to be very careful in communicating about asset purchases. But at the same time, it's almost an impossible challenge. How do you signal to markets that you want to do something that they won't like in such a way that they're okay with it? It's almost an impossible puzzle to be sufficiently careful and cautious about communicating the tapering of these asset purchases when it's something that you'll eventually have to do. So I think that the Fed has learned that this is a hugely meaningful decision for investors and not just the US, also the rest of the world. And they'll be very cautious about trying to communicate clearly what they plan to do. Alice Fullwood, thank you very much. Thank you, Ratna. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The economic recovery from the pandemic is prompting investors to start thinking about what will happen when quantitative easing, or QE, ends, or at least when central banks begin to taper their asset purchases. To understand what will happen when purchases stop, it's helpful to understand how central banks first began their QE programmes. And for that, we need to go about as far away from Washington as possible, to Tokyo. At the turn of the millennium, the Bank of Japan was stumped. During the 1990s, it entered the so-called lost decade. Speculative bubbles and land and stocks burst spectacularly. Companies were left with too much debt on their balance sheets. Banks had too many bad loans on their books, and that made companies afraid to borrow and banks afraid to lend. That depressed the economy, which led to inflation and only made the country's debts even harder to bear. Central bankers turned to their typical tools, lowering interest rates to try to kickstart things. But that didn't work. And by March 2001, after their target interest rate had been set at zero for quite some time without any change, they needed to do something radical. The Bank of Japan embarked on what has since become known as quantitative easing, although they didn't use that term at the time. Simon Cox is the emerging markets editor at The Economist, based in Hong Kong. Instead of targeting the interest rate, which is often described as the price of money, they focused on the quantity of money instead, in particular the amount of money that ordinary banks hold with the central bank. OK, we've been promising this for a while. Simon, give us your best explanation of just how QE, at least in its original form, worked. Basically, they did it by buying government bonds from banks. So the banks would hand over bonds to the central bank and the central bank in return would give the banks uh, freshly created money. Well, I think it's fair to say it didn't work quite as effectively or decisively as was hoped. I think when it was launched, there was a view that there was almost a mechanical, stable relationship between the quantity of money and and the broader economy. Uh, So if you created lots more money, banks would be emboldened to lend. Uh, That would put that money into circulation in the broader economy. It would encourage borrowing. It would encourage investment and spending. Uh, That would boost production and prices. In fact, uh, bank lending was pretty weak in Japan, even in the context of this new policy, there has been an attempt to identify you know, some effects from the policy and people think that perhaps it persuaded people that the Bank of Japan would keep interest rates really low for, for longer. Uh, it probably helped some of the weaker banks that could actually do with a few extra reserves at the central bank. It mattered because of what the Bank of Japan bought rather than just how it paid for it. So the Bank of Japan did buy longer term government bonds uh, and that probably brought down long term interest rates a bit, which can have some beneficial effects. So, Simon, how was this new approach to monetary policy viewed at the time within Japan? Well, I think it was seen as an experiment. Obviously, you know, this was 15, 20 years after central banks had tried monetarism. Monetarism, which is the belief that if you tightly control the supply of money, you can control the economy and inflation fairly directly. This was almost like monetarism used to the opposite purpose, to try and get inflation up. And uh, it was after, you know, a, a decade of failed attempts to get Japan's economy going. And I think that when uh, the global boom that uh, ended with the global financial crisis, when that boom helped Japan's economy uh, through other means, by boosting exports and so on, I think the Bank of Japan was quite glad to bring this policy to an end. Back then, you know, the Bank of Japan was still quite conservative, quite hawkish. It didn't really have a proper inflation target. And insofar as it had one, it was probably around 0%. 
So they weren't uh, as bold as they've since become. And what about outside of Japan? What did other economists and central bankers make of it? Outside of Japan, there was a feeling that this was all a bit of an oddity and a curiosity, that the Bank of Japan had got itself in an awful predicament and was having to embark on these experimental policies to try and dig itself out of that hole and wasn't having a great deal of success. People didn't realise the huge relevance all of this would have later on. We're now 20 years since that experiment in QE that Japan embarked upon. What's your assessment of QE? Did it help Japan's economy in the end? Can we say that it's worked? So it definitely affected asset prices. So, you know, we saw big moves in the exchange rate uh, after the 2013 policy was introduced. Long-term interest rates came down. We've seen corporate bonds very richly priced, so yields coming down there too. And I think all of that did help to uh, stave off the deflation that seemed to be taking hold again in, in 2012. But they haven't achieved the inflation target that they set out for themselves. And they do seem to have rather run out of ideas now and are really in a sort of holding pattern. They've since introduced innovations that are more about how can we keep doing this for a long time rather than how can we make this more effective so we can stop doing it earlier. Simon Cox, thank you very much. Thank you. For most of the 2000s, quantitative easing remained a solely Japanese experiment. But the rest of the rich world would soon come to know QE during the global financial crisis. We ourselves in Britain have taken the step of quantitative easing, as has America, and as has Japan, and as has Switzerland. Bernanke announced the Fed's intent to buy $600 billion in U.S. Treasury securities, which is supposed to have the effect of lowering rates on long-term loans. But a lot has changed since Japan first experimented with QE 20 years ago. Since Japan pioneered QE in the 2000s, it's changed in nature, expanded in size, and a decade of experience with it in the West has also shed light on its workings and changed how economists think about it. Henry Kerr is The Economist economics editor. We've reached this point where QE has become almost the go-to tool for central banks. And yet it remains somewhat more experimental than central bankers tend to let on in public and less well understood than the conventional historical tools of monetary policy. And now we've reached this point where it's an inflection point. We've heard about the scale of QE in America already. How big is it globally? It's massive. During the pandemic, the average daily pace at which America, Britain, the euro area, Japan, the world's big central banks have created money to buy bonds has been about $15 billion per day. They've chalked up well over $10 trillion in total cumulative purchases. So it's become very, very large. And if you remember, after the global financial crisis, there was a lot of QE and people talked about it as this experimental policy, central bank balance sheets getting big. But it's really not comparable to what's happened during the pandemic where it's really exploded. That's a huge amount of money. And we've even seen some emerging economies start to do QE as well. And yet you seem to be implying that we still don't know exactly how QE works. What's missing in our understanding? QE is a bit of a black box. We know what central banks do on one side of it, they're buying bonds. We know what comes out the other side, which is that long-term interest rates go down. The evidence on that is fairly clear and the consensus on that is clear. But we don't really know how exactly it does what it does, why long-term interest rates fall. And there are various views on that. And there's this iconic quote from the former chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, when he's talking about this issue. Well, the problem with uh, QE is it works in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. That's Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what do you think Mr. Bernanke means, Henry, when he says in practice but not in theory? 
Well, it's probably helpful to take a bit of a step back and go through the main theories about how QE works. When people think about the effects of QE unwinding, the episode they think about is the 2013 taper tantrum that Alice mentioned earlier, uh, which is when Bernanke hinted that the QE after the financial crisis might be about to be tapered. And it caused this big panic in financial markets where there was a bond sell-off, there were emerging market problems and so on. But although Bernanke was talking about QE at the time, when you actually look at what happened in financial markets, it's clear that investors brought forward their view of the date at which the Fed was going to raise interest rates, raising interest rates being its normal conventional monetary policy and not really something that's directly linked to QE. But the taper tantrum caused a repricing there and everything in the taper tantrum more or less followed from that despite the fact that Bernanke was talking about QE. And that's the best example of what economists call the signalling view of QE, which says that what all these bond purchases have been doing really is just telling markets that the central bank thinks the economy is really weak, that it's not going to raise interest rates for a long time. And you've really got to believe it because it's, it's putting a lot of money on the table to prove its metal, as it were, and that that's really what QE is doing. It's a signalling device. What's the other explanation of how QE works? Well, the alternative or perhaps complementary view is perhaps the more intuitive one, which is just that when central banks buy bonds, there are fewer bonds to go around, the price goes up because long-term yields, long-term interest rates move inversely to bond prices, long-term interest rates fall. It's called portfolio balance in the theory. You might as well call it supply and demand. But this is what Bernanke was talking about in that clip that portfolio balance, it's been a bit difficult for economists to actually make this work in theory. It sounds intuitive, but it's one of those things that doesn't add up very well in economic models. And that is one of the things that economists have been working on. The basic theoretical problem is that when the central bank buys bonds, that's the taxpayer that then owns the bonds. Investors are taxpayers. And so investors are still in some sense exposed as to and still own the bonds. And therefore, it's a bit of a neutral swap. That sort of theoretical problem is more likely to keep people up at night in universities than in central banks. But it's been one of the things that economists have been working through. So let's turn now to what might be keeping central bankers up at night. When to stop this programme of huge bond buying? People are definitely thinking as we emerge from the pandemic, how exactly QE is going to be wound down and exited. That poses the question of what are the consequences. The way I see it, there are three main ones. Well, that's very handy. So let's take those three in turn. Tell us about the first one. Well, the first and most important one is the effect on long-term interest rates. And this is where the issue about theory and practice comes into play, because if QE is affecting long-term interest rates on the way in, then presumably it affects them on the way out. And in the past, central bankers have tended to emphasise the portfolio balance, the supply and demand effects on the way in to say, look, we're having this really big effect on interest rates. Of course, the flip side of that is that as you unwind QE, you would presumably put up long-term interest rates quite a lot and it would seem quite disruptive and maybe that's something to worry about. But what tends to happen is on the, on the way out, central bankers switch to talking about the signalling view, say, no, no, we can maintain financial stability completely so long as we're very clear about the signals we're sending and we're really clear about our language. And that's the sort of thing that Jerome Powell has recently been emphasising. If you do take seriously the rules of thumb that economists put out 
for the relationship between QE and long-term interest rates, then you end up with quite big numbers for the implications of undoing what's been done. Numbers like unwinding QE would put up long-term interest rates in rich world countries by two or more percentage points, which would be a really big bond market repricing. But the last time the Fed did wind back on QE, it didn't get anything like that sort of market reaction. It wasn't apparent. If rates were to go up, why would that matter? Well, the second thing is the consequences for the government's borrowing costs. Long-term rates matter for economic conditions, but it's been common during the pandemic to say that there's been this synergy between monetary and fiscal policy, with QE in some sense enabling fiscal stimulus on the part of governments. This has been particularly true in Britain, where investors have taken note of the overlap between the amount of government debt that's been issued and the amount of bond buying that's been going on. And people have said, isn't this the central bank financing a government spending? This is actually a bit more complicated than it looks, because although you know intuitively it might seem like the central bank printing money, buying government debt is sort of helping governments do fiscal stimulus. In actual fact, because of the way the banking system works, central banks have to pay interest on that money they create. And in actual fact, it doesn't really help governments in a rising interest rate environment to have done a lot of QE, because what it means is that the central bank has to end up paying more interest on the cash it's created. If we enter a rising rate environment, central banks are going to have to start paying out lots of interest on the money they've created during QE. And that ultimately has implications for the government budgets. It's ultimately a cost that's borne by taxpayers. And so that's another thing to consider. And what's the third consequence of QE being unwound? The third main consequence of QE that's happened over the past year is this explosion in the supply of money. And you may think that's obvious. Actually, it's been quite novel. And to understand this, you have to get the distinction between what's called base money, which is like the physical cash and the electronic money that the central bank creates, and broad money, which includes the deposits that you or I have in our private sector bank accounts. And after the first round of QE in the West in the 2010s, some people predicted a lot of inflation because they said there's so much money being created. But while you did have base money going up, the central bank creating its electronic money, you didn't really have broad money going up very much. And the reason for that was there was a simultaneous credit crunch. You know, the global financial crisis really hindered the banking system. And as a result, there was less lending. And when there's less lending, there's less deposit creation by banks. There's fewer deposits around and less broad money. This time around, the link between QE and broad money has been much more evident because there hasn't been a credit crunch offsetting it. So we've seen this year in the rich world, this explosion in measures of the broad money supply. And this has formed part of the argument that's been made in some quarters that inflation is going to come back. So if we bring that all together, Henry, what are the possible consequences of stopping QE? I think that the rules of thumb for the impact of QE, once you put them into reverse, do give you some reason to worry. The fact that there's this disagreement about how exactly QE works shows that central banking is still as much art as it is science. Defenders of QE will say, well, we don't actually know how monetary policy writ large works. We've never really understood interest rates. It's not the most reassuring thing in the world to hear either. We've been in an era of experimental monetary policy and fiscal policy this year. And the amount of uncertainty that's out there about the inflation outlook, about the pace of the rebound and about the future of policy is very high. And I think QE is a significant part of that. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachna.
Thank you for listening to Money Talks. For much more analysis on business and finance news, try a subscription to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. The link is in the show notes. And a final reminder that we're moving. From next week, you can expect Money Talks in your feed weekly on a Wednesday. That's every Wednesday from May the 5th. The producers are William Warren and Jason Hoskin. The editors are Kim Gittelson and Sandra Schmoelli. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.